Father God, we thank you for gathering us this morning. Thank you for the privilege it is to be the body of Christ and to have union with Christ and uh, to share his life, to share his death and his resurrection. Uh, He is our entire life and salvation. And not only that, but to be his body and to share life with one another, that comes from him. And it's a joy to give form to that identity by meeting and by encouraging one another and by worshiping you together and by learning from your work together. We pray that this morning that would be what happens. We pray for me that your spirit would help me to speak truly and clearly about these books, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and that you give us all an attentiveness of mind, a softness of heart, and um, that you would equip us better to understand and to love these books and by them to love you. Uh, We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome back as we continue our series on a survey through the Old Testament. I want to start by um, just a couple more book recommendations. I made two uh, recommendations of very brief works, like pamphlet and short book level stuff. If you're interested in doing a little bit more reading about the Old Testament, uh, a couple of things I would point your attention to. This is actually the whole Bible, but it's called uh, Christ from Beginning to End. And it's really just a a book that tries to show how the whole story of the Bible unfolds in its unity. So what we're doing here with survey is, as you've seen, if you've been with us, we're taking each book and kind of looking at it as an individual piece, which is valuable. You learn a lot that way. Uh, But we always have to keep in mind, and we've tried to communicate this as we've gone, that these are best understood in the context of the bigger story that they're telling. So it's like looking at an orchestra that's playing a symphony and going, okay, it's helpful to kind of look at the first violin section and the flutes and understand what each thing is doing in its own voice. But of course, what they are doing is contributing to one uh, symphonic uh, piece. So we have to really understand that. So this is a book, uh, I think it's like 250 pages, Christ from Beginning to End, just to kind of show how this story is woven together as one story. And uh, that, by the way, that discipline or way of thinking is called biblical theology, um, which is a little confusing because we should be using the Bible for all of our theology. Um, But anyway, it's called biblical theology, uh, specifically looking at the the developing storyline of scripture, how it unfolds. And then there's these, uh, these little books. I've just this is just one of them, but there's a whole series that are called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. This one is, excuse me, The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross. Uh, but there are a bunch of these that are just about different, we could say different sort of connective tissues that run through the Bible. The Kingdom of God is a major theme that runs through the whole Bible. So books like this can just help us to understand what are the sort of connective tissues that, that bring the whole story together. Um, so... Again, just as a sort of a complementary perspective to the survey approach, which is each book, uh, kind of isolating each book. Again, we need both. We need to see what is this book saying specifically, and then what's the whole story saying, and how does this book help tell that story. So those are a couple of recommendations. Um, And then again, we've got two different uh, handouts. If you didn't get the second one, this is a little bit of a different one, the chart. Um, We are moving through the Bible. We've covered the Pentateuch, which is the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And uh, Deuteronomy left off with a cliffhanger because Israel is about to enter the land of promise. So what's going to happen? Are they going to conquer the Canaanites? Will they inhabit the land? And when they do, if and when they do, how will it go with the Lord's covenant that he made with them? How are they going to do with keeping his commands? 
Uh, today's books will begin answering those crucial questions. And uh, we're also moving into a new division of the Old Testament. We just finished what's called the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. What comes next? Well, this is where that colorful chart comes in that I handed, that I gave you. There's actually two different ways of organizing the Old Testament. Uh, one, I'm calling it the English way. It's a way that our English Bibles, it comes actually from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, that's what we're used to. It's the Pentateuch historical books, poetry, prophets. But then the, the Hebrew Bible is different. There's three divisions. That's the, the column on the right side. So you have same books of Moses. That's the first division. But then the, re- the, the middle one is the prophets. There's the former prophets. Those are historical books. So Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And then the latter prophets, which are the, the, what we know as the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the 12, the minor prophets as we call them. And then um, there's the writings, which is just everything else. <laughs> so it's all the poetry, but also some of the narratives, like Ruth. We're going to cover Ruth. So this is why I'm passing this out, is there's kind of two different ways of looking, how, looking at how Ruth uh, works in the Old Testament. You may have noticed, if you looked at the sequence on the left side, you're like, where did Ruth go? <laughs> it's gone. Well, it, Ruth, uh, you, you'll, if you look down, it's lower down. It's part of the writings. It's, it's, um, the writings... Some of them have historical content, but the way to think about it is there's this main line of history that's being told through the Old Testament. There's this kind of freeway of a historical, it goes from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. That's like the main historical line going through the Old Testament. And then there's these writings which are in various ways sort of comments on that, that story. So some of the writings... Um, are telling side stories that are kind of happening at the same time. That's what Ruth is. It's not the main historical thread of the Old Testament, but it's sort of a parenthetical. Meanwhile, in Bethlehem, you know, it's just like very limited. We'll, we'll talk about that. Some of the writings uh, are kind of an appendix because they're the books that happen after the exile, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And some of them are a theologically motivated retelling of the history. You want to tell us what books those are? What, what are the books that are a theologically or uh, motivated retelling of some of the same history we saw in the former prophets? This is a bit of a difficult question, but if you know your Old Testament. Are there any books that retell the story of Samuel and Kings? I'll, I'll be specific. Chronicles, yes, that's what Chronicles is. It's a retelling of, it's going back over some of that same history, but with a bit of a different set of emphases. So that's um, a, a way of thinking about the Old Testament. We're going to follow the English order in our series, but be aware that Ruth is kind of a parenthesis, and, and we'll get there uh, as the third. We're covering three books, so <laughs> it's going to be a little quick. Uh, any questions or thoughts about that before we kind of start talking about Joshua? Yeah, Lord. Um, just a clarification. So in the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. are, are they in this order? Mm-hmm. That's the order of the, the Hebrew, yeah. So obviously... Most people feel like the English way you lined up here is better, a better communication because all every Bible we see is. Yeah, why did it? Yeah, the story of why, I mean, it, it's really the heritage of the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that, that emerged in the time between the Testaments. And that's really the tradition that has given us our book order. I wouldn't necessarily say better as much as there are good 
they're kind of good reason. They're good. They're they're benefits of both. There are ways that it kind of brings out like Ruth's placement in our order makes a lot of sense because it's during the period of the judges, and it is really telling about events that lead toward the coming of David, which is what Samuel is about. So in terms of topic, between Judges and Samuel makes a lot of sense for Ruth, but there's also a different logic, and we won't really get into why, but there's a different logic for why it is where it is in the Hebrew Bible too, which is kind of quick. And, and yeah, so I would say they're, they're just different, but I wouldn't necessarily say one's better. Someday you could try to read your Old Testament in the Hebrew order and just see if anything, if you just notice anything in, in reading it that way. Yeah, but so we'll go ahead and talk about Joshua. We're going to continue this back on this main line of, of the story. So regarding the book of Joshua, um, we don't know who wrote it and we don't really know when it was written. This is going to be on the authorship question. There's going to be a lot of this in the Old Testament. We don't really know who or when. However, we know that there are some geographic references that make it possible to date around the era of the conquest um, based on some archaeology and things like that. And then we see toward the end, excuse me, the end of the book in chapter 24, there is an evaluation of how the generation after Joshua, how did they do? Which tells us that at least by the, at least the book was, was put together in its final form a generation or so after Joshua. So it was probably written a little bit after Joshua, but not long after Joshua's time. And he may have written part of it. We don't know. But its purpose is, one author says, to show how God brought the theocratic nation into the promised land. And theocratic is just fancy word for God ruling. It's the the nation God rules, how he brought his nation into the land of promise. It's continuing that historical thread from the Pentateuch and showing God is beginning to faithfully keep his promises that he made just as Joshua is faithful to carry out the work that God entrusts to him. So that's uh, basically the purpose and and, and the writing of it. Moving into the literary structure, how is this book arranged? How is the story told? Well, to to put it very briefly, it's 24 chapters. It's actually really nice how it breaks down because the first 12 chapters, you've heard the term divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. That's that's how you win. That's, That's like strategy 101, right? The first 12 chapters are about conquering, so conquer, and then the last 12 chapters are about dividing up the land. So conquer and divide. You just reverse divide and conquer. You've just learned a basic outline for Joshua. Conquer and divide. Um, we can break it down a little bit more into four pieces. Uh, and so the, the first one would be, and this is what's in your handout, this four-part outline. The first is cross, which is preparing for entry in chapters 1 to 5. And uh, what is, this word cross appears a few times in this section. What is to be crossed? What are they going to cross to get into the land? The Jordan River, right? That's the river that runs on the east side of uh, Israel's, of Canaan at this time. And they're in the wilderness on the east side. And this section, if you read it, it has tons of echoes of the Pentateuch. There's tons of different themes from the Pentateuch, from the books of Moses that are coming up again, resonating, and kind of, I think, signaling to us, this is the story continuing. God is the same God is doing the same plan. So you have things like um, in chapter one, when God is, is appointing Joshua and calling Joshua to succeed Moses, he mentions Moses time after time. It'll be like Moses and keep yourself... Uh, Devoted to the books of Moses, things like this. So Moses' name keeps coming up in that context. In chapter 3, there's a miraculous crossing of a body of water. 
right? The Jordan River, God stops the Jordan River so they can cross. What does that remind you of? The Red Sea crossing. Is that an accident? <laughs> is God out of ideas? No. He's, he's um, intentionally evoking that event to tell Israel for this new generation, I'm continuing the same work of redemption and delivering now, delivering the goods of that redemption. I brought you out of Egypt with my mighty hand and outstretched arm, judging the gods of Egypt and, and through this, this memorable event of the Red Sea crossing. And now there's this sort of echo of, I'm, doing, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm bringing you into the land. Uh, when the spies are in Jericho and Rahab is, is sheltering them, she says, we all heard about what your God did to the Egyptians with the Red Sea. So again, there's just all these echoes of, of the Pentateuch. Um, God is with them and he's completing his promises. Then the next section is chapters 6 to 12, and the key word here is take. This is entry into Canaan, taking the land. This section is mostly a string of victories that God provides for Israel. Uh, He fights the battle of Jericho for them. He brings down the walls miraculously. All they have to do is walk around in circles and blow a trumpet. They, They just have to keep his word, and he will do it for them. That's kind of the idea of that. And um, there's another place called Ai, where they win. A-I is it spelled. Uh, there's another battle they fight later where God provides another miracle. He keeps the sun in place so that they can keep winning that battle. And the day gets extended. Um, so uh, there's all these victories everywhere. But I said mostly. I said mostly. Does anyone know of anything bad that happens during this section, chapter 6 to 12? If you've read Josh, if you're familiar with it. Or even reading the headings on your Bible, the different sections there. Do they win the first time they try to fight I? No, why why not? Achan. Oh Achan. Come on, Achan. Achan's one of the, Achan's a guy in Israel who when they're when they're supposed to be destroying all of Jericho's stuff like God told them to. He sees some stuff he wants to keep. And so he breaks God's commandments and he doesn't devote as holy in this, in this context to destruction what God said to destroy. And so God uh, withholds his protection and his favor for Israel as they fight the next battle. And they lose. They, they lose the next skirmish. And it, it has to become evident. They have to figure out what happened. And it turns out, oh, this Achan messed everything up. And they, had, they killed him. They had to kill him so that they could, again, be, be purified and keep uh, having the Lord's victory. Uh, later on in chapter 9, there's this group of people from the land. They're called the Gibeonites. And they, uh, they're like, man, we can't beat these Israelites, so we've got to trick them. So they come and they, they, they dress like they came from a faraway land and, and have this long journey and said, we're from really far away. We want to make a peace treaty with you. Israel says, sounds good. You got a treaty. And they don't realize they're actually local. They were supposed to be destroyed. God had meant for them to be destroyed like the other people. So there's some, uh, there's some leaks and creaks, right, in this story of victory in this middle se- or the second section. The two opposing forces. This is what you see. All, we're going to see this all throughout the Old Testament. Two opposing forces in tension is the Lord's faithfulness and power to give them the land and keep his promises and then their struggles with folly and impurity. If you've read through the Old Testament, you realize hmm, this, this is a familiar tension, right? This is the story that's going to, this is this, the after Deuteronomy. How do they do? This is how they do throughout the rest of, from Joshua through Kings. Um, the Lord is good and faithful, but the people are, are um, 
struggle with failure of many kinds. Um, The third section is chapters 13 to 22, divide. This is how they allocate the land. So the Lord tells Joshua to divide the land up to various tribes. Uh, This section can be difficult to read if we're honest, because it it just goes and lists all these like place names and all these boundaries given to various people. But to consider, this is where the story is helpful to us, to consider what this represents, this moment for Israel. God is finally making good on his promises from all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12, when he called them to come into Canaan, he said in Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. And it's been hundreds of years and it hasn't happened yet. And so one might wonder, is, is God going to make good on his promises? Those who walked by faith that he would make good on his promises are, are celebrated in the Bible because God is faithful. And so this is the moment that's huge because it's showing, yes, it vindicates the faith of the patriarchs and of the prior generations, everyone who trusted the Lord, that he would keep his promises. Um, and then finally, the fourth section is serve, keeping Canaan and covenant, the last two chapters of the book. This is giving closure to the story. Joshua is charging the leaders and then the whole nation to follow the Lord, to keep his covenant. Um, and the highlight verse of this section is twenty four fifteen, where he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods uh, your fathers served in the region beyond the river, he's referring to before Abraham, Abraham and his family that he came from, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Saying you came from, from pagan stock, that Abram was called from among idol worshipers, and you're entering the land full of pagan idol worshipers. So you have a choice, guys. You can... Go back to the old gods that you used to worship or you could adopt the new gods of the the people that we conquered. But I'm calling you to serve the Lord only. You hear Deuteronomy, very Deuteronomic, right? We heard this call of him only will you serve with your whole heart. Uh, That's the main main call of Deuteronomy. The choice is before you, Israel. So any um, thoughts or or reflections or questions about how the story unfolds, what we just covered? All right, we'll talk a little bit of theology about, of the book. Um, I have, I think, two threads, three, three threads to bring out theologically. One is devotion to the book. Um, so Joshua begins, the book of Joshua begins with the Lord assuring and challenging Joshua. Do you think that if you were the successor to Moses, you might struggle with some insecurity? A little bit at... What am I? What do I have to do now? What am I being called to do? Follow Moses, the meekest man on the face of the earth. You know, like the the great prophet up until Jesus is kind of the next great prophet uh, that that exceeds Moses. But um, it's a high calling. But God has three words for him that are so beautiful. The first is devote yourself to to the law. Devote yourself to my word. Second, be strong and courageous. And third, I will do everything else. And you see these all summarized in. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Was someone willing to read Joshua 1, verses 8 and 9? Yeah, Joshua. Very, very fitting. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. So devote yourself to this book. 
and therefore be strong and courageous. And guess what? I will be with you wherever you go and give you success. And then at the end of the book, Joshua passes a charge very similar to this on to the rest of the nation. He says in 23.6, Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the, in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. So he's charging them the very same thing. You'll have success uh, if you are devoted to the word of the Lord. Uh, the second thread or theological theme here is promises kept. Promises kept. Um, verses 21, uh, sorry, chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That is emphatic. There's a lot of alls and nuns there, right? The Lord has done his part. He has kept his promise. He has delivered the land into their hands. But it is complicated. There's there's another side to it here in Joshua, which is there are also references to the conquest being incomplete. Just in the same book. Um, So uh, in, as we said, the section on dividing up the land, chapter 13, this is how it begins the Lord telling um, Joshua, who's old at this point, you are old and advanced in years and there remains yet very much land to possess. I myself will drive them out from the people of those lands, will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for, for an inheritance as I have commanded you. And Judges 1, even at the, after Joshua, Judges 1 makes the same point. Even after Joshua's death, the land is never fully possessed by Israel. The land as promised by the Lord. Israel never fully possesses it, never fully drives out its inhabitants. So how do we reconcile these things? There's a tension just right there in the book of Joshua. Um, I believe a a good way to put it is that the Lord has given them the land, but they must take it. He's saying, I have given it over to you. You have to mop up. You just go in and it's, it's sure. Your victory is assured. I have given you the land, but they have to go and fight. They have to go and dispossess the peoples of the land. And and you you hear that in chapter 13 where he says, okay, divide it up to the tribes. Basically, let each tribe do their own mop-up, I think is the idea there. Let them each go to their own area and and, uh, drive out the inhabitants. So um, they sadly fail to do their part. The whole rest of the story, they will be hampered. by, By the story, I mean the whole rest of Israel's history in the land. They will be hampered by pagans who live there, who they never dispossessed and they never finished destroying. So Achan's sin of keeping a little bit of Jericho for himself, we'll see that's actually kind of symbolic of the Achilles heel of how all of of this whole story is going to go. There's going to be an an impurity with which they carry out the Lord's purposes that will will be their undoing. Um, And the last theological theme is the fight for covenant purity. This this is very similar, right? Because they don't don't finish... um, uh, conquering the people, they're setting themselves up to fail the, the test of Deuteronomy. Uh, where did Achan go wrong? He didn't obey the word of the Lord to put Jericho to the ban and completely destroy it. And so just those, those threats of Deuteronomy are starting to loom. Um, if you 
are not zealous to give the Lord your whole heart, it will go very badly with you in the covenant. And uh, also in Deuteronomy, he warned them many times, you know, the people in this land are going to tempt you to follow various gods. That's why you're to be so zealous about destroying them. Uh, so there's this this battle for covenant purity, and we already start seeing which way it's it's tipping. Any thoughts about those theological themes or questions about clarification? Yeah, Matt. Maybe going back to verse eight. When I read that, I apply it in my life. Mm-hmm. How, how are we to read this in light of this is in the historical narrative? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe this is deviating too much off. Mm-hmm. Old Testament scripture being used to justify contemporary efforts, such as I know the plans I have for you. Right. But here, I mean, I, I read that and I go, you know, I have to I'm thinking about my immediate circumstances. So, is it appropriate? Yeah. You mean the call to meditate on this book day and night and you'll have success? Yeah. Um, great question. Is this for me? Is this verse for me? The, the short answer is yes. But we have to think carefully about why and how. Uh, which that's actually a great segue to application, which is our next section. So I'm going to actually go out of order and answer your question because this the second of two uh, application threads that I wanted to talk about is live the good life on the good book, which is a yes to Matt's question. Is one eight for me? It is for you. If you meditate on the book day and night, you'll have success. You'll have a solid foundation for strength and courage, and you'll have you'll be fruitful and you'll flourish. That's the point for Joshua. What's interesting is that there's a... Does that meditate on the law day and night, you'll have a good life? Does that remind you of any other place in the Old Testament? Any other chapter one of the Old Testament? (laughs) Psalm one. It's very parallel, and I think intentional. What's interesting, if you look at your Hebrew order, is Joshua one is the very beginning of the prophets. Psalm one is the very beginning of the writings. And they both have this shared parallel of, if you are devoted to the word of the Lord day and night, you will flourish. So Psalm, I think, is a helpful way of magnifying that promise to Joshua and universalizing. It's not just for the one leader, it's for all. And insofar, I believe, insofar as Christ is the exemplar of all these these models uh, in the Old Testament and the Psalms. I mean, who loved the word of God more than Christ, right? And was so devoted to it. You see it coming out of him in his ministry, left and right when he's tempted by Satan and so on. And what is he? He is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, bears fruit in its season, and all he does, he prospers. But it also, the whole Bible storyline helps us to define prosperity rightly. Right? So that's where we got into how the prosperity gospel, the error there can be taking stuff from places like Deuteronomy and not adequately reflecting on how the covenantal change has occurred. So going, we'll have land, we'll have fertility, you know, and going, well, that was the terms of that covenant. Christ himself meditated on the law like, like none other and loved the word of God like none other and he was crucified. So we, don't, we aren't to expect um, material flourishing in this life as a result, but it's a flourishing of a different kind. It's spiritual. It's the fruit of the spirit. We're going to be hearing about that in the sermon from John 15 that we abide in the vine and will bear fruit. So does that answer your question, Matt? I would say it's a yes, but you have to think through it in the context of the big story and how this text gets used elsewhere. Yeah. It's a great question. So, um, and whenever you see, by the way, in the talking about Psalm 1 and that tree firmly planted, you see this kind of uh, 
growth imagery and this life and growth imagery, these are intentional resonance of Eden, right? Because the, the perfect state from which we fell was, this, was a garden. It was a lush, verdant garden, well supplied by streams of water. And so this is the way the Bible works. It takes these images and it kind of plays with them and going, by being someone whose life is founded on the word, you're starting to taste a renewal of Eden that was lost. And uh, that points us forward to the new creation. Um, which has many parallels with Eden. We look at the end of Revelation. We're starting to enjoy the, the, the fruits of the new creation um, when we live a life that's, that's uh, rooted in, in the word of the Lord. So it's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. Um, so, so Joshua does encourage us to devote ourselves to the, the word of God. Um, and then the other application point is to rest and strive to enter rest. Um, which is a long thing, but there's there you see two sides of rest and then strive to rest, <laughs> which is a bit paradoxical. But a moment ago, uh, back when I read from chapter 21, I want to magnify this point from 2144, the, the Lord gave Israel rest in the land. This is a, a term that's used to describe their experience. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Now, it's a little bit complex. What is this rest? In one sense, God says he has given them rest by doing what? What is he referring to by saying he gave them rest? <clears throat> no more fighting? They're in the land. It doesn't, he's not saying you don't have to farm, right? They're going to work. But he's saying you have entered this realm, this land of promise in which you dwell with me and you're not going to have to fight anymore. Um, he's given them rest. But on the other hand, other scriptures will use, like Psalm 95.11 alludes to this, this idea of rest in the land, and uses it to call Israel to a more ultimate rest in the Lord. And saying, uh, don't be like the people, the wilderness generation, they hardened their heart and they didn't enter rest. So Israel, be like uh, those who did enter God's rest. So the entry of the land is sort of pointing forward to a different kind of resting in God. And Hebrews 3 and 4 takes up the same point and starts talking about this Sabbath rest, this true Sabbath rest that the people of God have in Jesus. So in some ways, the land, you know, in Christ, we are, are, we are resting, we are experiencing salvation, but we have not yet begun, we have not yet finished receiving that rest. And so Hebrews, it's, it, I got my title on this from Hebrews 4.11, this paradox, it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Which is a very interesting thing to tell someone. Strive to rest, right? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so he's saying, Christians, you're in a very similar analogous place where you have entered rest, but you have yet to receive it in full in Christ. So actually Israel's presence in the land being an, you've heard this already and not yet, that terminology for how to think about how, how time works in the Bible. We're, we've experienced some of God's blessings and we await them in full. Israel's presence in the land is actually a very helpful, um, kind of sim- symbolizes that reality that we experience in Christ. So we rest in Christ in his finished work. We rest in his salvation. But um, we, we enter that ultimate rest by keeping faith. As Christ holds on to us, we keep faith. That's the call of Hebrews. And we will enter his rest um, to come when he returns. 
So that's that's what we had for Joshua. Those are some uh, some kind of applicational points there. Any other thoughts on those things we've covered, or, or just other questions about Joshua? Yeah, Smokey. Um, <coughs> I have often wondered what to do with those I'm just increasingly seeing statements made in the New Testament that echo them, like in Philippians 4, Paul says, here's how to think. And on one side of it, he gives an exhortation not to fear, to pray, and on the other side of it, he the prosperity gospel by saying imitating mm-hmm. obviously eliminates all of that. So it's 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 like the same thing. The, 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 the points you know are not the same words. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's interesting. You could see that theme kind of resonating throughout in, in other ways, in other parts of the Bible. That's a, a good example of how each book and each author is a different voice, but they're all they're all kind of intermingle and tell the same story in some really cool ways. Um, great. Let's move on to Judges, uh, our second book. And uh, once again, we don't know who wrote Judges, and once again, we don't know exactly when it was written, but we have some clues about when. And when we look at the message and purpose of Judges, I think the when will become a little bit clearer. So. Um, for those of you who have read Judges, tell me this. Does Judges record good times or bad times? Bad times. Okay, so if you've read Judges, you know times are not good in the period of the Judges. Uh, and this book carries the historical thread of Israel's story from the conquest of the land to the rise of the anointed kings. That's what Samuel's going to be on about. Like, let's talk about how the, where the kings come from, especially David. Judges uh, is the piece that spans between those periods. It's actually, it's a, does anyone know how long the period of Judges is? It's really long. It's only 21 chapters, but yeah. 300 years. So, excuse me, lots of time. Like all of Samuel, which is probably three times, two over two times as many chapters as Judges, just covers basically David's life plus a few more years. Um, so, time is going very quickly in Judges. We're serving a, a huge era uh, it'd be like, for, yeah, what's 300 years ago? It, it, what's it? What's the year now? 1722 to now. So that's a lot of stuff that happens. But um, along the way, it's documenting Israel's unfaithfulness to God, even as he remains faithful and kind to them. And uh, it's not just rough with regard to the vertical dimension, how the people relate to God. It's also very rough horizontally, how the people relate to one another. The wheels start falling off as the story progresses into lawlessness. It's helpful to read Judges. One of the things going on through the narrative is a devolution into lawlessness. Things are falling apart into lawlessness. That is especially clear as the book comes to the close. This refrain begins emerging in the narrative that gives us an important clue about the book's purpose, which it first shows up in 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And various forms and versions of that will reappear four times, starting in 17.6 toward the end of the book in chapter 21. The very last verse of the book says that, repeats that. 
Everyone did, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, what is the, the, what might be the purpose of saying a statement like that? Evaluating history and saying, it's ugly, it's bad, and there was no king, and everyone did what they wanted. What might be the subtext or the sort of implications being intended by someone saying that? Because history is always told with an agenda, right? We're not just simply reporting facts. There's some point that the author wants us to draw. Yeah, Matt. Some sort of king. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe we need a king. <laughs> maybe we need a king. That's what's that's what's very clearly being implied here. And a, a righteous king. That's what one author says. The book of Judges serves to show that the once again theocratic people need a righteous king. The people need a righteous king. That is the purpose of Judges. There's a, an account in the middle of the book in chapter 9. There's a guy named Abimelech, whose name means my father the king. Hint, hint. <laughs> and he positions himself for a time as kind of a kingly figure. He sort of tries to become sort of a king. And he is a tyrant. So thankfully it doesn't last. He doesn't become a king. But that, again, just serves to reinforce for us. Israel needs a certain kind of king. Not a king like Abimelech who is an abusive tyrant, the king needs, or the, the, the nation needs a righteous king. It was probably then written sometime in the early days of the monarchy, uh, either during uh, Saul's reign or David's reign, although there is a reference to Jerusalem being occupied by the Jebusites, which means it was before David took Jerusalem during his reign and made it Israel's capital. So it was either Saul, probably, probably either Saul's reign or the uh, first few years of David's reign. Uh, there's your date and your purpose. Um, any thoughts or questions on that, on, on those matters? Yeah, Emily. Yeah, we don't know. No, yeah, that's a good question. You're not jumping ahead. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Somebody. There's a lot of a lot of the Old Testament. We don't know who wrote it. Um, yeah, any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Matt. Maybe another purpose is to show that these all these judges seem to do something good and something evil. Yeah. Uh, the, just kind of like in the big picture, the Christ-centered mm-hmm. gospel, not to value these heroes mm-hmm. so much that we, we deify them. Yes. That's, a, that's very true. We're going to bring that out, uh, Matt. That's a very good point that a lot of what's being communicated is certain things about leadership, what, what, what kind of leader we do and don't need. And, and there's a lot of comparison that's being, we're being encouraged to do. So that's a very good point. We're going we're gonna to magnify that in a bit. So you may have heard that Judges is cyclical. This is something people always say about Judges, cyclical, right? Uh, it, this one author says it, it features a constant alternation between apostasy, that's turning away from God, and its consequent oppression on the part of foes, followed by deliverance under a judge. So this is what happens. Israel strays from Yahweh. They worship false gods. They sin. He sends foreigners to oppress them. They cry out. He sends a judge to deliver them. Things go well usually during the judge's life, but when he dies, what do they do? Back to the same old patterns, and it just goes back and forth. Um, And it's helpful to realize, too, that the word judge, in the English, this word is too narrow to really convey what's going on. What does a judge do? In our in our society, right yeah. In what con- sort of right and right? In what context? 
in a court, a legal court, con, it's a very narrow function, right? The judges are the people in black robes, either in the criminal or civil court, but they're making rulings on legal matters. But the, the term is much broader having to do with someone who administers justice, someone who is a ruler. And uh, in, in judges, really the main thing that the judges do is deliver. They're deliverers. They also do some ruling as well. But maybe chief or ruler would be uh, a more adequately broad, even though there's a sense of administering justice there in the word. But don't think of dude in a black robe sitting on a bench. That's, that's not really what these people are doing. Primarily, at least. Um, so how does the book unfold? Well, first, in, in uh, beginning of chapter 1 through 2.10, we have the introduction. This is the, the passing of the generations, transitioning from Joshua and his um, peer, his, his generation to the subsequent one. Uh, the conquest continues, but it stalls out. Again, it never really finishes. They never finish driving the other people out. Then in 2.11 through 16, through chapter 16, this is, a, of course, 21 chapters. So this is um, basically uh, 15 of the 21 chapters. This is the judges of Israel. This is the bulk of the book. The narrative in 2.11 to 3.6 lays out the pattern in sort of a general way, what I just communicated to you in, in a brief way. The, they kept sinning. They kept being oppressed. They, they kept crying out God would deliver them and so on. But then... Um, then the rest of the time from 3-7 on is telling the individual stories. And they widely vary in length. Some of them, Shamgar, 331. Shamgar gets one verse. Okay? And there's some that get just a handful of verses. There's others that get multiple chapters. Deborah and Barak in chapters 4 and 5. Gideon uh, and Samson. We'll talk a bit more about Samson later. He gets all of 13 to 16. He's probably the most prominent in terms of how much attention he gets. Now, if you're a male youth and you've never read about Ehud in chapter 3, it is mandatory reading. You've got to read about Ehud. And if you're a, a young gal, uh, a, a, a female youth, and you've never read about Jael, J-A-E-L, in chapter 4, you've got to read about her. She's awesome. Uh, just mandatory reading for you youth out there. Everyone should read it, but you're going to love those stories. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's the, the section about the judges. And then the end of the book, we have two appendices, which maybe appendices isn't the right word, but two, two further stories. Uh, appendix sounds too, like, optional or whatever. But um, 17.1, so it's chapter 17 through 21. And this section is two long stories. And they're different than what came before because they don't feature judges rising up to deliver God's people. They don't, they don't follow that pattern. They're both very depressing tales of evil in Israel. That's the point of, the, of both of them. And notice, uh, we talked about earlier, this is where that there was no king motif starts cropping up, right there in chapter 17. And four times, in various ways, that theme keeps coming up during this section. There was no king. It was awful. Let me tell you about how awful it was. Pick out two really bad stories. Both stories feature Levites. What was the Levites, their, their tribe, what was their job? Priests and those who uh, had priestly-like role of leading the people in worship. They were, a, they were like the most holy tribe. Both of these stories feature Levites in unflattering and unrighteous roles. And the second story goes even further. I won't go into the detail now, but portrays chap in chapter 19, there's an event that, that smells an awful lot like Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis. If you've read that story... And what happens when people come into Sodom and Gomorrah? Now, today, when we want to 
paint something or someone as utterly evil, like when we're fighting online and we're just so mad, there's steam coming out of our ears, what historical comparison do we make to just totally gloves off, you're the most evil person? It's Hitler. It's always Hitler, right? Or the Nazis, right? For, in the Old Testament, that's Sodom, okay? So Sodom is like the paragon of evil. If you read, it keeps coming up poetically. The prophets will use it. And what it represents because of the story of Genesis, Sodom has this role narratively of reminding Israel, remember that awful, awful city that God blasted off the face of the earth? That's, and so it gets, it gets used actually against Israel in various ways by the prophets. And this is narratively doing the same thing. The author is saying, and by the end, Israel was Sodom. It was basically that bad. That's how bad it was. Israel was acting like Sodom. They're, they're failing the Lord's covenant. So any thoughts or questions about the the story, how the story unfolds? Yeah, Josh. The the story that we just talked about, Mm -hmm. the whole concubine thing, that takes place in Gilead, Mm -hmm. which is, we just talked about in Judges, which is, they made the covenant. Okay, with Gibeon, okay. Kind of like a cool, like, parallel record. Oh, okay. You follow me here, and now your worst sin is propping up right in the center of where you didn't come. That's a great connection. So Gibeah, of the Gibeonites, the people who deceived their way into a carve-out, that's where this sin occurs. So that's a really helpful ge- geographical connection um, to show this, you're being haunted by your sins of the past, uh, Israel. That's very, that's very good. Um, let's talk about theology. And I really just have one big theological thread to bring out. There's a lot of the theology of these books that are similar to other things we've seen, but I don't want to just keep banging the same drum over and over. Deuteronomy basically is the, like, the whole story. is like, keep the Lord's covenant, you know, watch out for the other nations. But this one, the, and this is to Matt's point earlier, one of the big distinct things in Judges is this theology of a spirit-anointed deliverer and king. Okay, so kind of deliverer king, we got this, this leader uh, that's being developed. Uh, Judges begins giving us the concept that will mature into David and eventually into Jesus uh, across the story of the Bible. So this is where we'll consider Samson in chapters 13 to 16. Samson is a special judge. Uh, he gets some attention, more attention than the others, and there's some special things about him. He is specially designated by God before his birth, chosen for a, a special purpose among Israel. Unlike the previous judges, we keep hearing throughout his life how the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And what does he do when the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him? He does great superhuman feats of strength to, to uh, combat Israel's enemies. 14.6 is a good place to see this, but there are others. So he is a spirit, and he has that long hair, right? And that's like the secret of his strength. If you don't cut his hair, he'll be strong. Um, he is a spirit-empowered super-deliverer for Israel. He's a super-judge. But what does he do with all that power? With all that potential? He squanders it. What kind of man is he? He is a joke of a human being in terms of his character. He squanders these great resources. He has God's power, but he uses... He, he spends himself on loose living, on foreign women which is, was a warning for Israel. Don't get in with those foreign women. They'll lead you astray. Um, he usually only exercises his power when he has been triggered by some kind of petty personal offense. He's not leading armies and going, we're going to finish the conquest. He gets 
uh, he gets ticked off by something personally and then he goes and kills a bunch of people. That's how he uses his powers. So we have this weird combination in Samson. I think he gets so much airtime in Judges because he is, I, I believe Samson is best understood as a parody, which is a, a feeble or ridiculous imitation of the kind of leader that we are being trained to look for. We are being trained to look for a king. We saw that already. But what kind of king? Well, it's immediately after the Samson story of 13 to 16. That's when we start hearing about how there's no king and things were awful. So implicitly, what we need is a king who has the Holy Spirit's power upon him, but also character that's wise and righteous and uses these powers for Israel's good. Okay, so... so uh, the Spirit's power to do wisdom and to do righteousness. And I, again, I think Samson is a parody of becoming uh, anointed rulers, David, and ultimately Christ. If you look at the historical flow of the Old Testament, again, we're setting up for Samuel. Against the backdrop of the judges, Samuel uh, features the rise of the anointed king, David. And if we look at the whole Bible story, it points beyond David to the, the greater David, who's Christ, who is to be filled with the Spirit of God, but What's that going to do? What's the spirit going to do in Jesus? Is he just going to wave a jawbone around and kill people when he gets mad about something? No. In, in Isaiah 11, 1 to 3, you have this beautiful prophecy about the, this, um, the shoot from the stump of Jesse and the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And what will that produce? Wisdom, understanding, the delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will do righteously. So there's this, this I keep using this terminology, flourishing of holiness and justice and righteousness and wisdom that comes but when the Spirit is upon this anointed king to come. So Judges is, is in so many ways, by way of contrast, showing us what kind of leader we don't need and showing us what kind of leader we do need. Um, so, so any thoughts about that or, or about Judges? That kind of closes our discussion on Judges. All right. Let's talk about Ruth. Uh, the, the last of our books, uh, I, I already mentioned that Ruth departs from that main line of narrative, historical narrative. It, it's a parenthetical account that takes place during the Judges. It's interesting, unlike all that we've seen so far in the history, it's not about all of Israel. It's actually very narrow in its scope. It's just a handful of characters living in a very limited place in a very limited time. It's a very much zoomed in to a, a, a personal story. And that's one of the reasons the Hebrew canon seems to put it in among the writings, sort of other, other writings. But it's not unimportant. It, it does fulfill a really cool theological function. Um, sorry, but we don't know who wrote this one either. <laughs> We're over three on, on knowing authors. Um, and dating, once again, like judges, I think we'll understand a little bit about the dating when we understand the purpose um, the very beginning of Ruth. Who wants to read Ruth 1.1? One, one? The days when the judge ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah was like a soldier in the country of Moab. He and his wife. Thank you. So we're setting up the story, uh, setting up the characters and the, the setting of the, the action, but the very first words... In the days of the judges. So we're being given this setting, which is not only a, just a story, it, 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 it roots our story in this era of the judges, which we should by now know after having read Judges. Ooh, bad times. <laughs> bad times, no king. And then look at the very last verse. 
in 4.22. Can someone read Ruth 4.22? Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. David is the last word of Ruth. That's interesting, huh? It starts with, in the time of the judges, and it ends with David. So, um, I, this is, again, I think this is why the Greek and English book order puts the book here. It may, there's a logical reason why it makes sense that it's here. It's telling the backstory of how David emerged from the era of the judges. It's telling this, this interesting backstory in the lineage of David. Um, but it, it, it leaves off on David, but it doesn't mention any of David's successors. Uh, like Sol- you know, Solomon is his son, who's his immediate successor, which suggests it was probably written during David's life and during his reign. Um, it would only make sense, a backward-looking uh, work like this, to explain a, a special episode in the life of the king. So it probably was written during King David's reign, but we don't really know. Um, Regarding the literary structure, how does the story go? Well, it's a again, it's a very it's a very tight narrative. It's just this one handful of characters. But in chapter one, Ruth comes to Bethlehem. We meet her as a woman from Moab, Israel's neighboring nation, and she follows her Israelite mother-in-law Naomi from Moab to Bethlehem after they're both widowed. So she enters the land as a Gentile woman. Chapter two, Ruth meets Boaz. Um, in the Mosaic law, the poor were allowed to do what's called gleaning, which is when there were kind of leftovers during the harvest in the fields, they could take the extra. It was a way to give them aid, um, a way to be merciful to the poor. And she's doing that. This brings her into the fields of a relative of Naomi, who's a man named Boaz. Chapter 3, Boaz, or sorry, Ruth appeals to Boaz. She kind of proposes marriage to him in kind of a subtle, indirect way, we'll say but kind of indirect, not too indirect. Um, She wants him to be what's called a kinsman redeemer. Uh, She wants him to marry her and, as it were, kind of buy her away from her destitute condition. Um, And she surprises him in his sleep. It's kind of an interesting story how that comes about. Uh, If you've never read it, you're like, what? Yeah, read it. You'll see how. She surprises him in his sleep. Verse 9 of chapter 3. This is perhaps the most important verse of of the whole book. He said, who are you? As one says when you're surprised to awake in your sleep and there's someone there. She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. This is basically her marriage proposal. She's saying, will you please spread your wings over me? It's a beautiful imagery. Take me under your care and redeem me. And he says, yes, he will. And he, he does take her under his wings of love and he redeems her and marries her. So chapter four Ruth marries Boaz, and they have a baby, which is what leads to that genealogy that ends with David, which kind of reveals, again, the, kind of the whole point of the story is, ah, we're getting a, a backstory about David's line, about King David, where he came from. But, uh, I mean, there are many ancestors to David. There are many stories that could be told about David's, uh, David's line that are untold in the Bible. Why is this one told? Why do we, it's, it's not simply for historical interest. What's the theology of this book? Well, we'll look at briefly at two theological contributions from Ruth. The first is it puts a Gentile in the anointed king's line. Wow, that's, that's, that is not insignificant. It puts a Gentile in the king's line as a great-grandmother, however many greats, grandmother of David. Actually, how many? Boaz fathered Obed. So great, just great. 
Just one great. Um, the Bible is full of ironies because God is always glorifying himself by thwarting human power and human wisdom and human expectations. So David is the preeminent king of all of Israel's history. And, and of course, he's a shadow of the greater David to come, the, the greater anointed one who's the center of the whole story. Um, but given Israel's special calling as God's covenant nation, it should come as a surprise to us that God would use a Gentile in his line, in this line of descent. If you read Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, how, okay, this is real, this is real inside baseball, but does anyone know how many women are, are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1? There are three women, okay? And what's interesting, if you look at them, they all have interest, they all have unlikely stories. They're all listed because they are not the kind of person you'd expect to be in the line of the king that Jesus is being shown to be in Matthew. Uh, and one of them is Ruth. Why? Because she's a Moabite. She's a Gentile. Um, uh, Rahab is another Gentile who shows up in the genealogy as well. So God is putting a Gentile in, in the line of David to, I, I believe, thwart our expectations and to surprise us. That uh, Which kind of leads to the second um, point, which is the nations are coming under the redeeming blessings of Yahweh. So I read the verse where Ruth asks to come under Boaz's wings of redemption. And uh, this, this, is why, this is largely why we have this book, is showing us there's something deeper than this one human marriage at play here. Because back in chapter 1, this is also a very telling passage, a very important one. When Ruth was declaring her loyalty to Naomi, she said this in 116. This is probably the, the other of the two main verses of the book. She says... Do not urge me to leave you. Because Naomi's like, ah, oh, just go back home. You know, just go back to Moab where you're, where you're from, your family. And she keeps trying to kind of wave her off. And finally Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And that your people, my people, your God, my God, that, that echoes covenant language. We've seen it when God says, you're my people, I'm your God. That's how he talks to his covenant people. So to have to put in the mouth of a Gentile saying, I am going to join this covenant nation. I'm going to know this God as my God, the Lord. And this is one of Ruth's major messages is that the Gentiles from outside the nation are welcome to come in and to know the Lord like this. They're welcome to come under his redeeming wings, his love. And uh, they're welcome to even join this covenant and use this vocabulary, my people, my God. Um, And this hints forward, of course, along the whole Bible storyline, that the the prophets will start magnifying this hope for the Gentiles, that Jesus' saving mission will be for the nations in the new covenant. This hope for the Gentiles is is kind of, we see some of these early crumbs of it in the early days of the Old Testament, and it just grows and grows through the prophets. And finally you have Christ, of course, coming in and giving his great commission to go forth in all the nations and make disciples. So, um, and, and, I, and I, these two theological points are kind of connected. You know, to put a Gentile in the line of David is, again, suggesting that what the story God is telling through this line is for more than just one nation. It's going to relate to the whole world. So any other thoughts about, I know we're super quick on Ruth, but any questions about what I've said or other thoughts on, on the book of Ruth? 
Greg preached through Ruth a few years back before Genesis, so if you didn't hear those or you just want to hear them again, there are four helpful messages on Ruth. Oh, yeah, Josh. That's a general question. That's not yeah. for Ruth. Mm-hmm. Should I do that now? Yeah, okay. that was good. Um, it's kind of a funny question. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a sequence between English and Hebrew yeah. organization of the books of the Bible. Yeah. So, um, Jesus often quotes the Old Testament from the Septuagint. Yes, yes. So, like, we can rest easy knowing that perhaps the scripture he quoted from was laid out the same as our English. Yeah. So it's, yeah, no, so it's, that's a very good point. So Jesus and the New Testament authors often are quoting the Greek, because they're speaking, I mean, the New Testament's written in Greek. So when they are quoting the Old Testament, they're often quoting from the Greek translation that we have, that we know of. There's a lot of affirmation there in a, a few things. One is it's good to translate the Bible. You know, the, the New Testament authors and Jesus are cool with Bible translation. They use it. But also, yeah. Um, but what's interesting too, because you're saying it was the, it, it's kind of a stamp of approval on the Septuagint. Potentially book order. But one thing that's interesting is you also see Jesus talking about the Old Testament in ways that reflect the, the Hebrew canon order. Um, I don't know why. Yeah, that's a good question. Why, why does he think of it in terms of the Hebrew order? But he uh, seems to quote the Septuagint at times. But um, the, he'll, he'll often say the law and the prophets, which is there's a twofold way of talking. That's a way of saying the whole Old Testament. But in a few places, he'll say the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Like in Luke 24, he'll say that. And the Psalms is a stand-in for the writings. Uh, the Psalms is the beginning of the writing. It's the first book of the writing. So that's his way of doing that threefold thing. But um, So yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't think there's any reason to... I mean, the, the order of the books is not an inspired... It's kind of a meta thing about the, the text, but it is, it is kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Because it does kind of imply certain things about the story, the way we order them. But Yeah, I don't know if you had other thoughts on that. It's a great... Yeah, did anyone else have thoughts thoughts on that? Um, great. Or, or not just that, anything. Uh, great. Well, uh, we'll go ahead and close in prayer then. And next week we'll be back in with uh, books of Samuel. Father God, we thank you for this plan and this story and how you unfolded it through these many centuries and how you... Uh, have have told us your purposes. Uh, you have used Israel in a lot of ways to show us our own hearts, to show us the nature of sin that we know ourselves very intimately in our own lives. And you've also shown us the shape that our hope takes in Christ. You've shown us what kind of leader he is. We would not appreciate um, the Lord and Savior that he is if we didn't have these models to, to contrast and to anticipate. So we thank you for all the ways that you've woven this story together to help us to understand who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And uh, as Gentiles, that all or most of us are, we, we especially praise you for the book of Ruth and this story and this truth of how all the nations are welcome to come under your, your redeeming love in Christ. And um, we, we thank you for your... Uh, saving grace that we have experienced and we pray that we would study these books and love them and that you'd work in our lives through them so that we might live for you in jesus name amen